Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast. I'd like to start by acknowledging that I am recording on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. I also acknowledge and respect the continuation of cultural, spiritual and educational practice of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and I extend that respect to any First Nations people we might have here with us today. Being on a board can be an incredibly valuable, interesting and exciting experience. Yet it can also be lonely, challenging and, let's face it, pretty hard. So here at Take On Board, I'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you navigate your way onto a board, onto your next board and to build your governance wisdom. Now, on with the show. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Pauline Vamos about the 2022 Board Diversity Index, recently released by the Governance Institute of Australia and Watermark. First, let me tell you about Pauline. Pauline is deeply experienced in broad financial services in the listed commercial and not-for-profit space as a non-executive director and chair. She is currently the chair of Interaction Disability Services Limited, the Governance Institute of Australia and Money Tech Group Limited, as well as a non-executive director of the Banking and Finance Oath, Chief Executive Women and Mercer Superannuation Australia Limited. Pauline is a recognised and proven leader, communicator and stakeholder manager with both local and overseas experience, and she has expertise in insurance, superannuation, funds management, distribution, technology, non-financial risk, strategy, governance, regulation, public policy and safe harbour. You can see why I've got her here today and indeed why I might have her back again at some stage in the future to talk about her own experience rather than the Board Diversity Index. But today I'm speaking to her in her role as Chair of the Governance Institute of Australia, who, as I mentioned earlier, co-authored this report, the 2021 Board Diversity Index. So welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Pauline. Thank you, Helia. Lovely to be here. Oh, it is so fantastic to have you and to have an opportunity to talk about this report. However, as Take On Board listeners know, we can't get into the topic without first digging just a little bit deeper about you. So let's dig into your ancestry, if we may. Where were your mum and dad born and what do you know about where your ancestors are from? So my mother was born in Malta. My father was born in England. He's from Manchester, which is very important for any English listeners. And my ancestry goes back through Scotland and through, particularly on my dad's side, through French 
and threw a bit of Irish in there as well. My mother's side, for anybody who knows about Malta, is a teeny, teeny island in the Mediterranean, being lived in and lived on by many, many different communities and countries. But I suspect my mother's line goes right back to the Phoenicians. So it's very much a Phoenician background. Before we hit record, we were having a brief conversation about some of my ancestry and the name. So it's always fantastic to hear about these things. And um, my brother-in-law is, or his family is from Malta as well. So it's on my list. My sister and he have been there, but I haven't been there yet. It's beautiful. Oh, you've got to go. Mm, It's definitely on the list. (laughs) So what about you then? Where were you born and where did you grow up? And are there any siblings? So I was born in Scotland. My father was in the British Army, so I spent most of my early childhood living in Malta, in Bahrain, and in Germany. So we travelled around a lot. We came to Australia in 69, and that was myself, my elder sister of 11 months, and my twin brothers, five years, my younger. So we came in 69, and uh, a 10-pound pom. And uh, we um, have been, ever since, most of us, I think, are Australian citizens now. I was the first one. I became an Australian citizen during high school, the first one in my family. Oh, how fabulous. Very, very important to me. So then I just heard in there, I think, your, your sister, who's 11 months older, 11 months younger, and there's twin brothers. How much younger are the twins? They're five years younger. Oh, I was just going to say, if they were a little bit closer in age, I thought, oh my gosh, your mother had a number of very young children all quite close together. But no, there's a bit of a gap until the boys. She had my brothers then. She was pregnant in Bahrain, were living in an army camp. The Sultan's wife was giving birth, so she booked out the whole of the Bahrain hospital. My mother then had to go over to Aden to have my brothers. And while she was there, war broke out my father with a mate had to sneak across the border and basically steal her from the hospital and bring her back she lost all her milk she doesn't know how she survived so my brothers were brought up on carnation milk oh my goodness what an incredible start to the world for them so where were you we will get into the topic soon but I'm fascinated by this story where were you and your sister We were back at the army camp while my dad went AWOL. There were no nannies in those days, so I don't know who looked after us, basically, and nobody has admitted anything. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Right. Wow. What a story. (laughs) Yeah, story of my life. Carol's appalling, always travelling, always moving. Wow. Okay. Well, then then I'm wondering, because the next question is about languages. How many languages do you speak? I speak none besides English. My parents both spoke Maltese, but they wouldn't teach us Maltese because they wanted to have their private language. So unfortunately, no languages at all, which I'm very sad about. (laughs) I love that. They wanted to keep it as their own private language. (laughs) I I was going to ask you, uh, because one of the questions I ask is the names of the traditional owners or the first peoples of where you grew up. But that is kind of an Australian question, or indeed maybe it's just a colonised country question. So, but I did a lot of a lot of my growing up was in the in the Newcastle and Port Stephens area. So, of course, the traditional owners are the Wollumbi peoples. There's some 
fabulous stories about them. The women used to make, because there's a lot of coast, used to make amazing jewellery and heads, headpieces out of the shells around the area. And the men used to, you know, you've got the Wollombi, very tall trees, so they would run up the trees with sharp knives and cut their way up, get the fruit and run back down. Quite incredible fit people. I went to a small country school when we were up there and, um, you know, we had a lot of Indigenous people and it was beautiful because at that time we had a very progressive schoolmaster and basically... We all learn together. So the integration of uh, of Indigenous and not non-Indigenous, and a lot of us were immigrants, so we were all, you know, none of us quite fit. And then I remember my last year of high school, I was at Raymond Cheris High, and so this is six, this is seventy eight, and they had separated Indigenous and non-Indigenous. So I had a lot of Indigenous people at that school, but they weren't allowed to learn. They were herded into one classroom. That was in 78. Not so long ago, really, is it? It's quite extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. Where my family is at Lemon Tree Passage in Port Stephens, with the back of Port Stephens, large tracts of oyster leases, which are all run by Indigenous families. So... And we've always, you know, so it's 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 a very integrated community up there, and it's a good example of a of good, healthy integration and respectful communities. And so, then, finally, in our introductory section, I'm wondering because you've lived in a number of places. So, where do you feel your place or your home is? You know, whenever I get off a plane, this sounds terrible. Whenever I get off a plane in the Northern Hemisphere. I, I feel very much at home, particularly if I go back to the UK. But in 2000, I took my mother, my sister, my daughters back to Malta. I got off the plane. I mean, I don't speak a word of Maltese. Hired a car, got in the car, and Maltese drive like many, many parts of Europe, one hand on the steering wheel, one hand on the horn, and one hand on the gear stick. So arms are going everywhere and, uh, you know, you're screaming at each other the whole time. I got into that car and I drove like a typical Maltese all the way across the island. So I think Malta. Interesting. You're, you're there and you just fit right in. Fit right in. Yep. <laughs> fit right in. Oh, how fabulous. Thank you. Thanks for giving us some of the background. The Take On Board community knows that I love stories and hearing some of them. Whilst board diversity is something very dear to my heart, I love hearing the stories of the guests that I have. So thank you so much for sharing. So then let's now turn to the Board Diversity Index. It was released very recently in the last month or so, I think, and it put five types of diversity under the microscope gender, cultural background, skills, age and tenure and independence. And as I understand it, looked at a, about 300 organisations and about 2,000 board seats. So we know that diversity in the boardroom is not only important so that boards reflect the broader society in which they work, but it's also better for business. Again, we were having a brief chat about that before we hit record as well. So I'm wondering from this report, what are some of the key findings? I think there were a number of, of lessons from the report. Um, the first one is putting the actual stats aside, which I'll come to in a moment. 
I think the biggest lesson we learned, and I've had a lot of feedback since it's been issued, and that is our recruitment processes need to be radically changed. Put a skills matrix together, we go through a recruitment agent and we go through the normal process of trying to find a fit. But when you look at the gaps, not only in gender and in cultural background, which has gone nowhere, the fact that in this day and age, there's still so few board members, male or female, with no digital experience, male or female with no human experience, as in people, is just mind-blowing. You know, when you think of ESG, you think of the S. You, you think of the fact that you know, technology is completely changing the world we operate and the businesses we operate. People are our most expensive and valuable asset and the war for talent is extreme. A big part of what the board does is actually manage the CEO and have a relationship with management. Yet very few people on the board know anything about how to deal with people. I mean, I just think that's bizarre. So I think we have to really think those skills matrix and what we actually need on a board. And I also think one of the reasons why we've seen so little change, particularly with some of the skills and the and the cultural, a bit of the age as well, we've got a, a lot of oldies on there who have been there a long time, is that we're not adjusting our governance, our governance for the requirements of, of the company. You know, in, in the older world, you operated your company the same way for quite some time. The world didn't quite move as quickly as it does now. Today, it moves like crazy. It moves up, down, around, and you, your business can change within weeks and months, never mind years. So what that means is we have to have a much more active and active approach to governance. Our boards must be fit for purpose today and tomorrow. So I think we're just not seeing enough renewal and enough change of our board members. With data, the way data can be retrieved now, having 20 years of corporate knowledge is no longer that relevant anymore. You know, people think it is, but it ain't. And I think the big conversation we have to have is, are we approaching the recruitment and the changeover of our boards the right way? And I would say no. And the results in this report, which basically say we're still underdone, we've still got some ASX 300 boards with no women, we've got many with just one, we've got the vast majority of roles still filled by men. Last time we did the survey, we had a greater proportion of women taking out board seats that women hold. We've now got more board seats held by women, but less number of women. So that's overboarding. So we've got the same women on different boards who are obviously, I think, would be quite stretched as well, which is no affection on them at all. We've got still a very high proportion of directors who are not independent, which means we still have a lot of founders. We, we've got a lot of move with private equity. So, again, the, the value of having independence on board is absolutely vital. A lot of women are over 14 years on a board, which is way too long. 
just mm-hmm. way too long. You know, and I, I know we've come back to nine years and 12 years, but I would argue that in this day and age, you've got to look at lower numbers because we have changed so much. I think age diversity is getting better. We've still, you know, we're getting some very young people on, so under 30, but not many. And we've got, you know, a female who's 90 on a board. Now, I'm not ageist in any way. And I think with some companies having, particularly in some of the services you you provide, having that link into the community is very important. And, And I think, again, what the results are showing me is that you know, you've got to have different lenses in your board, but you also need to have that real link into the community. And that's why I worry about the skills and experience. And I'll give you an example. Um, I chair a disability services board, as, as you know. One of the results and recommendations of the Royal Commission was that disability boards have somebody with disabilities on their board. We focus with, we have intellectual disability and you've got to be careful because you have major responsibilities and liabilities as a board member and you want somebody who is able to contribute and feels they can contribute. So it must be a positive experience, you know, because disability, particularly intellectual disability, it comes in all forms. And so, uh, you know, we think we can find somebody with special needs but could easily, because of the nature of the special needs, could easily comprehend and contribute to the board because you need somebody with that mindset. So, again, that's we just got to have different conversations. Get rid of some of the chairs. When you look at some of the tenure of the chairs, they've been around too long, and I'm a chair of three boards, and I, I purposely look at that each time. But also, again, the results show me, and I think show others as well, and those of us on boards know this, if you've got an underperforming chair or an underperforming director, it is really hard to get rid of them if their tenure has not come up. And that's a hard conversation to have. And again, that is the people side. If you had somebody on the board who was used to dealing with real real people issues, real underperformance issues, maybe it would see more change. Oh, my gosh, there is so much in there that I want to pick apart. I barely know where to start. I feel like you've just popped me in a lolly shop and I'm overwhelmed by all the lollies that I want to talk about. Well, let's pick up that last part first. The one about turnover, sometimes underperforming board members, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they are performing well, but they've just been on the board for too long and therefore their independence is no longer really independence. Or they may not just – turnover is good. You don't want it every year, you don't want it every day, but you certainly want a regular cycle of turnover and you definitely want turnover with underperforming boards. And I agree wholeheartedly that people skills are more and more required in the boardroom. But as a chair, you're the chair of three boards. I always think that underperforming board members, it's really a key role for the chairs to be able to manage that and have those conversations. So tell me about it from from your chair perspective. What should chairs of boards be doing to encourage encourage, heavy inverted commas, turnover of underperforming directors or even just that normal, healthy, positive cycle of turnover of board directors who are performing, but it's it's time. There's a couple of things. One is the board review, okay? And 
again, for many, many of your listeners that have been on board, the Navan has been part of board reviews. Some board reviews are really constructive and I think can really provide boards and companies with a way forward and some are just useless. I find a lot of the self-assessments I've done over the years, you know, I, I'm happy to admit I give myself a five. I think I'm great on the board. How we frame those assessments, how we do them is, is very important. I'm running one at the moment and it's a board that sort of is, it's got some new members and old members and I've stood back and said, so what is the, what, what are we trying to do with the board review? Because I think we always fall into this, well, we've got to review the performance of the board. And I would question that. From a chair perspective, you know what's working and what's not working. If you've got an under, if you've got a board member who are just not engaging, you've got to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. They're either too busy, mm-hmm. or they're too busy, or they're too busy. You know, mm-hmm. or they're just not interested. But I find that's the biggest, or, or they've got a personal issue going on. And I've had that before. And if a board member has a personal issue, then of course I give them leave of absence. But you know, I'm looking at a process at the moment. I'm saying, well, the biggest issue we have is that there's a difference in expectations between management and the board. Board is not performing in management's eyes and management are not performing in the board's eyes. So how do we resolve that? And we resolve that through an anonymous 360 review because we've got to put our expectations on the table. Again, are you doing a board review because the world for your organisation has changed and you need to change your board for the future? Is the company's performing badly because the, the board are no longer fit for purpose? Then that's a very different review as well. So I think that's the first thing you do. And as chair, you've got to drive that conversation. And then the second thing you've got to do as chair is as you're thinking about the strategy of the business, the short, long-term strategy, just like boards are always thinking about CEO managing succession, that science around succession at board level is not done well, in my view. And I'm not the best at it. I'm happy to admit that. But I'm always looking at, so, so what do we need? What do we need at a board? And then the other very hard question, and I'm looking at one at the moment, is the size of the board. Bigger is not always better. Smaller is not always better. Sometimes you need small to grow. Sometimes you need to get rid of a couple of, not because they're not contributing, but because the nature of the board, you need more agility. I think size is a really vexed issue as well. And this all needs to be driven by the chair and and they are hard conversations. That's why you speak to a lot of chairs. They say, understand all that, agree with that all, Pauline. But, uh, you know, I'm just not paid enough to do that. And there's that real discrepancy between what a board member gets and what a chair. But then I say to them, well, do you have KPIs as a chair? Mm. Is all that clearly articulated as a chair, what you're supposed to do? Their PD, if you like, is not very different to other directors. So that accountability and that process around directors and chairs, as you would any senior executive, I think is missing sometimes. That is such an interesting point. I don't think I've ever quite put together that, you know, the CEO reports to the board, 
and through the chair. The board reports, for want of a better word, to the chair. But the chair, well. The chair is never accountable. That's right. I've never actually quite put that together, that the chair doesn't have their own sounding board in that, that they don't have anyone that, I mean, of course, accountable to the shareholders, but it's sometimes quite a indirect accountability. It is, although it can be very direct in some boards, can I say? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> with often then the what, and, and as um, as you have with the ASX corporate governance principles, the chair of your people and culture committee needs to be different from the chair of the board. So from my perspective, so I get assessed by the board, but that is driven by the chair of the People and Culture Committee. That is an excellent point. Okay, shout out to boards that are listening and particularly those People and Culture chairs. You might want to have a conversation with the chair of the board about how accountability works. Actually, and it leads to another reflection here about opening conversation about all the things that might need to change. There's quite a few of them. Some change is happening, sometimes it's a bit too slowly. We're making, as you say, making changes around gender, for example, in the boardroom, although I would say too slowly and indeed resulting in overboarding for some women. In terms of cultural diversity, it's absolutely too slowly. So I'm wondering, what's your advice? You're the chair of the Governance Institute. Uh, What's your advice to the for example, the Governance Institute members, or what's your advice even to the take on board community members? What should we be doing so that we can speed this up and move it along? So often our approach to recruiting is we advertise and we wait for the applicants to come in, we make a short list and we go from there. When you're recruiting an executive when you speak to a recruiter, they spend a lot of time trawling through their contacts Mm -hmm. to find people. Again, I'm not disparaging recruiters at all because recruiting, to be frank, is a noble profession. If you find somebody, the job of their dreams and the company attracts somebody that is going to take them to the next level, then that is one of the most noble things you can do. It, It is so important to get it right. But I do think that there is not enough conversation with the boards, with the CEOs in particular. And there's this big thing of CEOs should never be involved with recruitment of board members because there's a, a you know, but I think, again, let's, let's rethink that because what is best for the company? And the board is not necessarily the only ones that should have a view on that. The CEO should have a view on that. Shareholders should have a view. Community should have a view. And then what is the characteristics of that candidate? And then really go out and look. And if you don't get enough people with a certain experience, enough gender, enough culture, then you've got to go looking. You've got to go looking. You've got to knock on their doors. And I don't think this is done enough. I do get a call every so often. They say, you know, when will you have space? Because I'm full up at the moment. So I think, well, when am I, when will I have space? And so, again, the better recruiters have that list of people coming up so they do a lot more mix and matching, which takes some strategy and it takes some resources. I just think we need to just rethink that whole identification of the prospective applicant and then be a lot more forthright and purposeful in how we hunt them down and the great thing is one of the great things about the pandemic is that Mm -hmm. we're not limited by geography anymore we're just not you can 
you can really hold a constructive board meeting, you know, virtually and limit to two, three maximum a year that you all come face to face. We're all used to it now. It works. Just time to change and rethink it. It's another level of diversity as well, in a way, in terms of that geography, and it opens it up for people from regional areas, from rural areas, from all over the place, which is also a perspective that's needed in the boardroom. You think where younger people are going to build their family, you think where older people are going to move away from full-time work, I never use the R word, there are gems all over Australia, here and overseas, and it's, uh, you know, look at New Zealand, it's got some great people there as well. And again, it's about not being scared. And I can imagine with smaller organisations, bringing a board together in the one location can cost a lot of money. But now with you know technology, it doesn't have to be such a, a cost inhibitor. Absolutely. And a time inhibitor for those that are participating as well. Oh, Pauline, we have barely scratched the surface of this report. And I will make sure I put a link to it in the show notes because there is some just great little gems in there and that I'm a bit of a data nerd when it comes down to it and I love the statistics around it because it helps to build the case for why not why diversity is needed hopefully we all know that by now although not everybody knows it clearly but what needs to happen to make sure that diversity happens and so some of the statistics in there are just incredibly useful so I thank you they are are disappointing yeah 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 But, but those disappointing stats are really useful to have I think it's like once you see it in black and white, it is a little hard to kind of ignore, I guess. So I really thank the Governance Institute for taking the time to do this on an annual basis. For how, When did it start? How many years ago? Third year that we've been doing this. It puts, puts a mirror up to our listed companies, which most of us are shareholders in through our superannuation. So there is that importance of getting it right absolutely yes yeah it's a interesting way of being able to uh have you say from your greatest investment generally around superannuation yeah oh pauline like i say i feel like we've barely scratched the surface but i will make sure we put a link to this report in the show notes and i really strongly encourage those in the take on board community to have a read there is some really interesting stats in there in fact, you know what? It's interesting. We have a we have a take on board book club where we come together every couple of months and we have a book on the reading list and we just come together and talk about the book. I'm thinking we might have the board diversity index as a book, shall we say, and we can come together and have a chat about that. We might do that as well. Again, it'll be interesting to hear people's theories as to why we still get the results we have when with so many boards, including government boards, they have a quota. But why are we missing out on schools? So I could be wrong, but I think it's down down, down to recruitment. It's a good hypothesis, a strong hypothesis, I think. So Pauline, what are the key things you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? First one is do not treat recruitment for your board as a process. Time to rethink it. Having the right board is absolutely vital. Holding your chair to account to ensure you get that right diversity is very important. And really rethink whether your board is fit for purpose today and in the future because longevity does not necessarily mean, doesn't mean they're not a good board member, but maybe they're not good for the organisation and what it needs now 
and in the future. And other than the Board Diversity Index itself, because I will definitely link to that in the show notes, but other than that, is there a resource you would like to share with the Take On Board community? Look, I'd love people to go on to the Governance Institute website. One is, I'm fairly new to the Governance Institute, and I hate to admit this, but can I say some of the guidance is fantastic. So Governance Institute is all about practical governance and whole of organisational governance. There are some incredible best practice papers. We have a newsletter. Sometimes you just need a little bit of help. We're all facing different governance issues. We all face them in a different way with the pandemic. We're now in a different world and that's going to mean a lot of different pressures on boards. You know, I consider myself a governance expert. I am continually surprised about what I don't know. It is moving and um, you've just got to be alert to that. And practices of yesterday do not necessarily mean it's good practice today. And isn't it, you know, I've got to say, it's one of the things I actually love about practising in the governance space is that things are always changing and moving. There's always new things to learn. Things are changing, but also um, the role of shareholders is changing, particularly significant shareholders that, that come in, of private investors or institutional investors that come in, but the role of shareholders generally and their influence on, on boards, I don't think we think about that enough. Well, like I said at the start, Pauline, I suspect we'll be getting you back on the podcast. I think there's any number of topics we could work through. But thank you so much for joining me today to have a chat about the Board Diversity Index. As I say, as soon as I saw it released and I contacted the Governance Institute and said, great, can we talk to somebody? Because it's certainly an important thing to me. I know it's an important thing to the Take On Board community. So thank you for joining us. And thank you also to the Governance Institute and to Watermark for doing the research for what we now know is three years in a row and presumably continuing it into the future. So we continue to have these benchmarks about and the data about what is happening, which can help guide us in what we should be doing. So thank you so much for coming and sharing your reflections with us today. Pleasure. Thank you. So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the Take On Board community. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So I invite you to join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, an active group that helps, supports and cheer squads each other. Just search Take On Board in Facebook to find us. I'd really love it if you could also do some of the other podcast things. Share with someone you know who might get some value from our discussions. Subscribe if you haven't already. And, well, I also really love it when people rate and review. Thanks again for being part of the Take On Board community. Now go and put these tips, tricks and advice into action so you can be your best in the boardroom.